Hey, Andrew. Been a while. <laughs> yes, it has. What are you into? Well, this week I... Uh, actually, just yesterday, I finished Prey on PS4. It was really good. Would recommend it to anyone who likes the Bioshock uh, series of games. It definitely is a spiritual successor to that and the spiritual successor to System Shock, which was... And Bioshock was a spiritual successor to System Shock. Anyway, really good. Um, when we talked about this before, I'm not sure if we talked about it on the Lost episode or on the Guardians episode, but uh, its best twist is is a really, really good twist. I'll leave it at that. Um, I'm also reading Wise Man's Fear, and I'm maybe only 10% of the way into the book, but... So far, my complaints about the first one are my complaints about the second one. I am really, I can't wait till they get out of stupid magic college. I hate this plot. I just, yeah. I hate it. And yeah, I mean, you'll get you'll get what you want, uh, but I, I wonder, at the book is all said and done, what your thoughts will be. I'm curious, but I, I'm not surprised that you feel the same way, because it kind of just feels like you picked up where you left off, and not a lot's going on. Well, and we hear so much of the book of characters talking about how awesome Kvothe was and all of the really cool shit he did. And he killed a king and, and maybe an angel. And that's when there's like cobblestones that are broken somewhere from when he killed something and they, they can't be repaired. And like, it's like all kinds of cool stuff. And instead I'm reading about a feud he had with some dumb kid at school. Like this is the worst so I'm going to stick through it because I have to, and we'll see what happens when I get to the end of that. In terms of things I am super duper enjoying, the first four episodes of the new season of Twin Peaks came out last week, and I think going forward, it's going to be one episode a week until they get through apparently all 18 of them, and that's going to start, they start the regular schedule here this coming Sunday, and those first four episodes Oh boy, I'm a happy, happy, happy boy. Oh man, oh man. What I love is that you know sometimes when you when they they're gonna do one of these revivals and they're gonna bring it back, right? You worry that ah, uh, they're you know, they're gonna take the parts that everybody loved and they're gonna just go all in on those, and it's gonna be just this kind of referential nostalgia thing. But oh man. They said, hey, you know what people mainly didn't like about Twin Peaks the first time? The fact that it was just like one weird fever dream that never really made sense. And it just included a lot of scenes that were just weird, surreal garbage. Hey, what if that's all we did? And I'm like, yay! It's weird, surreal garbage. The whole thing doesn't make a lick of fucking sense. And I love it. I'm so happy. Uh, that does not sound like something I would enjoy. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. It's, and it, it, there's a, there's a thing in there that David Lynch, cause he's directing all of the episodes uh, in this run, which makes me very happy because he's my favorite director. But there's a thing that he does that I forgot about is that like when he's shooting dialogue or shooting, you know, like shot reverse shot type scenes where, you know, you see one character talking and then you switch and see the character they're talking to is that he just lets some of those shots go on too long. Like a person says what they're going to say, and then they just kind of sit there for what feels like an extra two or three seconds when a normal show would cut and go to the next line of dialogue. And it's just two characters just looking at each other. 
And he does this, and so the conversations sometimes have this really weird rhythm, and oh, it's so good and so unsettling. Sounds awful. <laughs> uh, describe to me briefly in two sentences or three sentences the plot of Twin Peaks, if it has one. So the the inciting incident of the show is a young girl, Laura Palmer, is murdered in this sleepy northwest north yeah northwestern town of Twin Peaks. And Special Agent Dale Cooper of the FBI shows up to investigate, and the mystery is turns out to be much more than a standard homicide. Things get supernatural real, real quick. Hmm. Interesting. I only have an interest because um, I guess the main character, played by Kyle... McLaughlin. McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in second or third season of agents of shield and played an amazing manic crazy character and i was just like this guy seems really cool i'm like what else has he been in oh he's in that weird show i never watched okay yeah well he's also the mayor of portland in portlandia and um (laughs) paul atreides in david lynch's dune Uh, he's worked with david lynch a lot actually but in this so in this show he plays at least three different characters so far in this Uh, season (laughs) okay (laughs) yep yep uh it's so good Anyway, uh, also watching American Gods on Stars and man, that they're just doing a great job. Great. I I think my, I might maybe this afternoon watch that or something because uh, I didn't really like the book and I didn't finish it, which is uncommon. But maybe it's better in this medium. It could be. I, I I'm just very much enjoying it. I think it's not only a, a great adaptation and showing you that when you have great source material, it's okay to be faithful to it and. That sometimes being faithful to the source material is a good thing. And it's also doing a lot of things, and there's a bit a lot written about it, that it's actually doing a lot of kind of revolutionary things for a television show in terms of uh, some of its depictions of sex on TV, especially uh, gay sex. And um, it's I think it's going to end up being a landmark show for a number of reasons. Cool. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, it's always nice when something that a lot of people – care a lot about and like a lot has a good adaptation yeah i said that before but so let's do a little bit of housekeeping before we dive in (laughs) we're yeah we've been off schedule for a while now and we keep trying to get back on schedule and some other crazy bullshit happens what happened most recently was so we put up our guardians of the galaxy episode and then we plan to do another kind of mini episode to keep pace before recording this episode and we recorded that episode I think, a pretty good episode. And then within a few days, Karen's computer crashed. Now, that normally wouldn't have an impact on the podcast, except that the computer that I use to record the podcast is technically Karen's backup computer. Karen writes from home. This is how she does her job. So then Karen starts using that computer, and it crashes (laughs) because this is the luck we have. And so it was initially a thermal failure, and then... Uh, that caused a hardware failure in the hard drive. I was able to salvage pieces of the episode, but not the entire episode. So that's the lost episode we're talking about. So when I, at some point, at various points during this conversation, I might say things like, I'm not sure. I feel like we've talked about this before, but I'm not sure. Uh, it's probably because we talked about it on the lost episode. And uh, and there you go. Yeah, it's unfortunate. We'll try and, I mean, I think we're going to touch on some of the things we talked about just for news-wise here today. We have some more information about it, mm-hmm. which is good. Uh, and maybe someday we'll make 
a special edition episode of me just talking to nothing. <laughs> my audio is salvaged, but well, yeah. So we have that. what we have is we have the first half of the episode is intact, both of us talking, and then the second half of the episode, just my audio is gone, <laughs> just gone. So it's just <laughs> Andrew having half of a conversation. It's pretty spooky. So one, probably if it right in in like David Lynch movie, right? <laughs> yeah, probably. But only if it was. So what you do is first you record it, and then I play it back for you backwards. And then what you do is you then redo it, mimicking the backwards sounds, right? And then I flip that tape so that it's you talking forwards but backwards, but really strange. So that's Gross. what we'll do. Um, so that's why things have been kind of wonky lately. Uh, but one of the things we talked about in that lost episode was the Game of Thrones sequels and prequels that, you know, have been, that HBO has been talking about. They've been talking about four, although some places are saying five spec scripts that are being written for uh, Game of Thrones series. Now, we talked a little bit about what we would like to see in those. Should they be prequels? Should they be sequels? Kind of acknowledging, well, no, they're not all going to happen at once. This is, you know, they're just kind of testing the waters, seeing what they like. Rather than shooting pilots, they're just writing scripts because pilots for a show like that are very, very expensive. So in the meantime, since, you know, all of that crashy nonsense happened, um, George did a bad thing. And by say a, by a bad thing, I mean he used a typewriter to do anything other than finish Winds of Winter. And that was he posted some stuff on his his blog, which is like a long-form Twitter, for those of you out there, um, <laughs> to kind of clarify what is going on and talk about some of you know, his wishes for the series. And he talked about it in the context of there could be five of these things, which, is, which isn't terribly interesting. But um, as he was writing about it, it kind of seemed like he was talking about he was really talking about these. I mean, he didn't go out and say they are all going to be uh, prequels, but that's kind of what, if you kind of read between the lines, that's kind of what he's talking about. Um, he, and though he did say that it won't be Dunk and Egg, which is the story of Aegon II. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Okay. <laughs> one, of the, one of the Targaryens takes place about 100 years before Robert's Rebellion, I think. And yes, yes, a little bit more lighthearted, a little bit more of a classic medieval adventure, but it won't be that because what he doesn't want to have happen is he does, he says he's not finished writing Duncan Egg books and he doesn't want a TV show getting out ahead of the books again. Okay, fine, fair. But now we're essentially saying it won't be Duncan Egg. He also said it probably won't be Robert's Rebellion. Yeah, kind of saying like, well, by the end of the current you know, Song of Fire and Ice series, you're going to get all you need for, about Robert's Rebellion. You're not really going to need to go back and and see it in any more detail. Uh, and then he talked a little bit about, you know, oh, there's, you know, it's a, you know, Westeros is just one continent in this larger world, and this larger world has a thousand years of recorded history, which means we could be going all over the place to other um, exotic locales within that world, which I, for one, am not psyched about for a number of reasons. The main one being, dude, you tried in the Song of uh, Ice and Fire books to take me to another continent. And those are the worst chapters in all the books of, <laughs> you know, Danny over there in um, Essos are just the worst. So I'm not confident. So that brings me to the topic of prequels. I feel like we're getting a lot of them 
all over the place, especially in TV and movies right now. And I think that this recent conversation about, you know, potential Game of Thrones spinoffs being prequels has clarified for me something that I think has been rattling around in my brain. And I think prequels are inherently broken, is what I'm going to say. That's your thesis statement? Yes. Okay. And I guess I should say that, because we're going to talk about prequels and sequels, and I think we should have kind of a definition of terms here, because things can get kind of murky. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking this morning as I was, you know, kind of getting my head together for this conversation that, like, The Two Towers is not the sequel to The Fellowship of the Ring, right? That that was essentially a pre-planned series, a pre-planned trilogy. It's not the sequel in the same way that Too Fast, Too Furious is the sequel to Fast and the Furious. Like, hey, this movie was successful. Let's make another one, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably, like, I think when you, when someone says, like, I wouldn't call, yeah, like the same thing, I wouldn't call the books in the Song of Ice and Fire series sequels to one another. Is one cohesive story. Uh, that gets a little murky. Yeah. Uh, it's tough because some things are like, well, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that's fine. I'll stick with that I mean, for now. We get into authorial intent there and it becomes a little bit tough to suss yeah, like out. I think about Star Wars. It's like, well, right. he had an idea but you and could, then he kind of didn't. And he says a lot of things, but we don't really know what he actually wanted and what we got. You know, I don't know. But you can look at the end of the new of A New Hope and get a good sense that, like, oh, this is this could be entirely self-contained, right? Like, yeah. we've loved the Death Star. There's a big party at the end. If there were no more movies, you wouldn't necessarily feel like, oh man, like really a lot of unanswered questions there, as opposed to the end of Game of Thrones, the first Song of Ice and Fire book, where it doesn't really have an ending. It's like ah. Man, some bad stuff happened, and now everybody's going off to clearly start some other kind of adventure, right? Mm-hmm. It kind yeah. of – it knows. It's not just leaving the door open to more stuff. It's like, no, this is – stay tuned for part two. Um, and I think prequels as well get a little murky because as part of my research for this, I was Googling like, you know, best movie prequels of all time, right? Because it's kind of – I'm showing my cards a little bit here. But – most of the lists that I found were made up of these things that I really wouldn't call prequels. Like X-Men First Class, I really wouldn't call that a prequel. That's kind of a soft reset, soft yeah, reboot. I would agree with that. You know, is is Batman Begins a prequel? No, it's kind no. of a, you know, and Casino Royale, uh, the you know, the first Daniel Craig James Bond movie gets that a lot because it's, you know, set up as though this is his first mission. And but it's not really a prequel. It, it is oh we're kind of starting over here, and when we really talk about true prequels, it's really it's meant to really fit into the continuity of the rest of the stories that are already out there, and yeah. fill in some missing details about the world before before the characters before, and maybe shed some light on recent events. I will agree with you all. I think we could probably separate two. So there's starting to be this thing, and I wrote it, going to talk about it later, but we'll just bring it up now since we're doing definition terms. People are now using the term equals. What? Just prequel or sequel without a prefix. Uh, basically to mean side story or parallel story uh. or spin, maybe even spinoff. Because, you know, I think there's prequels that are like uh, arguably The Hobbit or 
the Star Wars prequels are the best example of like you're or like doing Robert's Rebellion is the good example. Like we're gonna show you exactly what happened before this versus a prequel that's like, well, we're gonna show you what happened like a thousand years ago, and it may or may not really have any impact on the quote unquote main story. Which I guess in this context we're gonna say the main story is just the first one hmm. because it's possible, although I don't think we've seen it, that you could have a story you have and it not be the most interesting story and. 2000 Years in the Future was a much more interesting story that a more well-seasoned author or filmmaker makes uh, that doesn't necessarily have an impact on the first film or first book that you read or something like that. Hmm. What do you think about that? That's an interesting I, – I, I, I'm trying to think of an example of something that it's like, oh, this takes place this – this is set chronologically before the works you've already read, but it – has no obvious impact on that story. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it can it, wor- it can work in areas that I mean, you can sort of, like sort of saying like, well, if it's part of their history, then it maybe has to have some sort of impact if it's a big event, correct? Right. But uh, so like I've seen examples like I mean, when in like if they did a Lord of the Rings prequel series, it wasn't The Hobbit, but was something from like Similarian. That was like, you know, from 3000 before then, like, would it really have a huge impact on or maybe more than that? My years probably aren't right. But, you know, you're a bigger token there than I am. But like some story about that, that, like really doesn't have any effect on the ring or Sauron or Gandalf. You know what I mean? Like you can, I, I can envision it in my head. I don't know what that story would be off the top of my head. Maybe I'm wrong. But well, even the Silmarillion. So I'm told because, again, no one's ever read it. Um <laughs> It does take place thousands and thousands of years. It's kind of the creation myth and the early mythology of Middle Earth. It clearly is still building up to to that showdown with Sauron. You see Sauron as kind of the second in command of the of the big devil, and you can uh, Melkor, and you can see even though a lot of the conflicts are, I guess you could say, inconsequential to you know what Sam and Frodo get up to, it still is drawing the lines of good and evil in the world and establishing the kind of loose magic system that's there. But I think we've got, I think we're, I think we're good on what, I think exploring some of these things of like really far flung prequels, really far flung sequels, side stories, which again, I think calling it equals just feels so gross and weird to me. (laughs) I knew you were going to hate it. I don't, I don't like it either. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just – we call them side stories. It's just what yeah. you, you call them. It's This is what's going on, you know, on the other side of town <laughs> during the, the thing you like. Um, so there are some other things, and it's not just this Game of Thrones stuff. Um, the Star Trek Discovery trailer came out last week, which is a Star Trek series that is set between Enterprise and before – the original series. Enterprise is a prequel? Yes, Enterprise takes place, or no, is it before? I think it's I think it's after Enterprise, but before. Anyway, doesn't matter. Not really all that important. But again, it is, um, it is, it is a prequel to the, um, to the, the original series universe, which, and you can even see from the trailer, some of the things they're trying to set up. It, you know, what is the role of the Federation as a military entity? You know, all of a sudden they're starting to come into conflict with the Klingons and they're having these kind of, I mean, again, it's a short trailer, but it seems like the conflict of are we scientists or are we soldiers is going to be a theme, which is 
decent. You know, we've talked about that. Um, but again, it's a prequel. It is, at some point, it has to wrap up with setting the table for um, what will be, and I'm certain setting up the, the table for the what we're calling now in Star Trek canon the Kelvin universe, which is the universe, the timeline of the um, uh, Chris Pine movies. Because let me, t- I don't, I don't know if you watched the trailer, but man, they got themselves some lens flare, and you're not putting that much lens flare in there unless you're trying to draw some concrete lines between this and uh, and the newer Star Trek movies. So is it is it in, sorry, are, is it in the Kelvin universe or is it before the Kelvin universe splits? I, I think it would take place before that it splits, but okay, it seems it seems to have a lot more in common with the J.J. Abrams Star Trek mm-hmm. than you know the the previous you know television star trek so yeah i mean i think i think one thing we gotta think about as well as what i said earlier about like maybe two shades of prequels i think we also just think about medium and how like the style of story you're telling is a crucial i think is a crucial consideration when you're talking about can a prequel be good (laughs) can you make a good compelling prequel i think when you think about something like the more episodic or like low stakes it is i think it opens you up a lot more and since Star Trek, at least, you know, up in, you know, not maybe not the movies, but it didn't seem to be like, like, it wasn't as if there was one story, right? Like, the bigger universe is, like, you know, in Star Wars, Star Wars is a big universe, but you can kind of tell there's like, this is the main event that's happening at this time. Where in Star Trek, you kind of get the feeling that like, well, this is just one ship out there, right? Sure. Other ones, right? Like, you know, and maybe this interaction isn't as important as what, you know, Sulu's ship later on is doing whatever, like, I don't know, that's a thing, but, um, or like what happened before, like, I think that the less kind of lower stakes story it is, the more episodic, the more adventure you can much, I think it frees you up to do it a lot more because it's not like, well, this is the great war and this one thing that we focus our initial story on. So, yeah, I think that's a good point because, you know, Star Trek doesn't have a lot of, other than some of the movies, doesn't have a lot of big world savey moments. So yeah, you do feel like, oh, this is the enterprise. This is, you know, we could go in and see another ship that's happening around the same time. And that's essentially what Deep Space Nine and Voyager were. They were, here's other stuff that's going on in Federation space, more or less, simultaneously with um, with Next Generation. Um, so we also have Alien Covenant out in the theaters now. I'm hearing mixed things about. I'd like to see it. Very mixed. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's weird. I was like, at first I heard, like, terrible things. And now it's like hear people love it some people are saying it's the best movie in the series and i was like whoa hold up like what other people are saying it's worse than prometheus and just like i don't know what to believe anymore <laughs> yeah i i'm i'm looking forward to when it hits streaming because you know i used up my leave the wife and daughter at home to go see a <laughs> space movie points uh when i saw guardians so but again it, it, it's one of these prequels that is now occupying a smaller and smaller space between you know uh one thing, Prometheus and the, you know, the quote unquote main story, which is alien. So it's like, okay, so this is now, you know, if, if Prometheus was alien zero, this is now alien 0.5. And then we're going to get alien 0.75. And just, we're going to be occupying this smaller and smaller space up until you have your rogue one moment where you're like, oh no, this takes place literally five minutes before the first movie. Yeah. I mean, and like, I haven't seen Prometheus yet. And once again, heard mixed things, mostly bad things, but some people really like it. Uh, and this is this, this whole the alien thing is another example of what I the example I use of Star Trek, where it's like the story of the first alien movie, while a good story and an interesting one, you get the feeling that like, I mean, 
it's just as possible Ripley could have died on that ship and it still would have been an interesting movie and or interesting story, let's say, in the context of like the greater story of that universe, which didn't exist at the time, but now does. And something before it could be more interesting, right? Like, I don't know. Because it's, 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 that world just seems so disconnected. Like, whenever you're in a story of an alien movie, it's just like, they can't talk to anyone else anywhere. It's like, they're just there, and the shit goes down, and whatever goes down, and then one person lives, and they make, make it to the next place, and then more <laughs> shit goes down, right? Like, that's kind of those movies. So you got the feeling that, like, well, I'm, I'm ignoring some of the other ones, the bad ones. But you get the feeling that, like, well, you know, once again, maybe there's even more some other planet that the plot of Aliens, which I think is also a good movie, could have happened prior to this movie you know what i mean like i just like the order doesn't really matter in those movies yeah you're right um and i think that honestly talking about that franchise i think you you know the first one was great hey what if we took a monster movie and put it on a spaceship instead of a house mm-hmm. great concept and also what if we really made the what if we really really sexualized the horror to make to kind of flip the script on traditional you know kind of 70s and 80s horror movies where it was a woman being stalked by uh, a male figure <laughs> um, a with all this, you know, sexual imagery of like, you know, sex and then violence and sex and then violence and she's being stalked. So there's kind of rapey vibes. And then what if we made the, we flipped the sexuality of that and made it all about, you know, it starts out, you're attacked by, suffocated by a vagina monster and then a penis monster eats its way out of your chest. Like that clearly pays plays on you know um, more male sexual insecurities than it does female sexual. So you know, great great concept for horror. And then the second one was James Cameron was like, I really want to make a Vietnam movie, but what if I made it in space? And he made a great movie. And they don't really have a lot to do with each other other than these kind of genre flipping ideas and this kind of female empowerment in the end of all of them. And great. But I don't know if the xenomorph itself and the, you know, strange derelict spaceship itself is enough to really build a universe around, especially when the most interesting things about aliens were when they were flipping the script on what we already thought about horror movies, sci-fi movies, war movies, etc. Not necessarily, hey, what, don't we have a creepy looking monster? Let's put it in as many movies as we can. Right. And I think that um, I I don't want to dilute your upcoming points, though. I mean, let's let's (laughs) focus for now. So, you know, we've, we've kind of framed a little bit. Let's think about the, what, what you think of as like a traditional prequel, like the Star Wars prequels or, you know, the idea of Robert's Rebellion prequel or maybe even something like a Prometheus, which seems a little more directly related to the story, like the story that you know is coming. Yes. So, like I said, my thesis statement is that I think prequels are kind of inherently broken and we should just stop making them. Um so I think that – and that was the obvious problem that always comes up in conversations about prequel is, prequels is that I already know the ending of this. I already know that at some point that little kid has to turn into Darth Vader. Now I'm just waiting around to see how it happens. And I don't think that from a storytelling perspective, answering the question of how is ever as interesting as answering the question of what's going to happen next, right? Um there are some movies that, you know, do interesting things with the how are we going to do a thing? And, you know, like the 
Ocean's Eleven series are great at like, how are they going to rob this bank? Kind of heist movies or the Mission Impossible series, which are essentially heist movies as well. Like the how is the interesting part of the movie, but it's happening concurrently in the course of the movie. It's not, the movie doesn't start with, well, we sure did rob that casino. Let's talk about how we did it. I mean, you know they're going to rob the casino, but if you don't know they're going to rob this casino in the same way that you know that Anakin Skywalker becomes Darth Vader. I mean... Spoiler alert. Yes, Jesus. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I mean, maybe they could have done something neat in those where it actually turns out that Anakin Skywalker is not Darth Vader, where you halfway through, you flip it, and there's this other character who you thought was a side character, and halfway through, he murders Anakin. And it's like, nope. I'm Darth Vader. And Obi-Wan was wrong. No, Obi-Wan was right. Darth Vader was just lying. That could have been interesting. And that could have, if you did that early enough in the prequel series, now you could really flip people's expectations. Like, oh shit, what? I thought this was all about how he became Darth Vader. But now it's really more about um, how did all of this fall apart? I don't know. Could be a little bit more compelling than the how. And again, I mean, Rogue One was interesting but like did you ever really care how they stole the death star plans did you ever really need those questions answered i mean mostly because like the how was pretty poorly executed but (laughs) uh, (laughs) i mean like you know i i as since i think that's a good point because that story of how the death star plans got stolen has been done i think I, i think this is i think rogue one i mean this is now the official canon thing but in the prior Star Wars Expanding Universe, it had been done four separate times that were all canon, <laughs> uh, including the Dark Forces game, a part of a Han Solo prequel trilogy, uh, also two, one or two of uh, the Force Unleashed games, like a couple other things. So like it all just combined. And then they had the prequels on top of it where you actually see, you know, the Death Star plans and all that garbage. So people are people seem or I'm going to say people creators seem to be interested in telling those type of things for some reason. Well, I think, you know, I I mean, if you're trying to write a Star Wars story, it helps if you can have some way to tie it into the, the big heart of the franchise. But Mm -hmm. so that's the first complaint is really that like how it happened is never as interesting as what's going to happen next in a story. Like that's what keeps you on the edge of your seat. That's what keeps you reading is what, how are, how's everybody going to get out of this jam? You know, how are, how are Luke and Han going to get out of the trash compactor? Not, hey, I really wonder what that uh, monster, I wonder what his life cycle was like and how it got into this pit. <laughs> no. Two things. Two things. <laughs> of course, of course, of course you know the answer to that. No, I don't know oh, okay. the answer to that one. But uh, two things. First thing is, so you're reading A Wise Man's Fear right now. Yes. Which you know the ending to. Well, kind of. do I? I mean, you know where, you know where it ends. You just haven't seen how it happens. So I know it's a different style. So there's okay. So I but. I do and I don't know how it ends. I know how it because there's the there's the there's the framing device story, which at some point I'd like to get to, where we have the mature wizard battler guy who's going to go kill some demons. You know the interesting part of the story, not like oh boy, I wonder if he's going to pass this year at wizard school. Um, I, I I remember I remember like somebody said like. What what did they call it? I'm forgetting it now. I saw like a Reddit comment or something. It was like <laughs> King Killer Chronicle, Personal Finance 101. Like it's like so much is about like how like much his, money he has at any given point and how much he needs. Yes. Oh my god, I know. 
which like I found it strangely compelling. It's like, I kind of know what that's like. Like I'm looking at my bank account on a daily basis trying to figure out if I can make ends meet. Right. But no, that's right. not a fun thing to read about. And honestly, but, 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 but there could, you could tell an interesting story about like just trying to get by on the streets in a fantasy city. Like that's, that could be neat, but you can't in the first chapter of your book dangle in front of me. Hey, there's a super cool story that we're going to get to. Actually, there's two super cool stories we're going to get to. Uh, number one, about how this guy became this king killer and then, uh, you know, and then had to go on the lam and end up in hiding. That's a really cool story. Can't wait to tell that one. Oh, and then he's going to have to, like, come out of retirement to kill a bunch of demons. Aren't you excited about that? But first, let's <laughs> let's get into, into excruciating detail about how he got a little bit of money, lost a little bit of money, got a little bit more money, lost a little bit more money so that he can pay his goddamn tuition at wizard school. Here's the thing. I know he becomes a wizard. I, I'm good. I, and you know what? I don't even care if he graduates or if he doesn't graduate. If he just, at the end of the day, I know he becomes some kind of cool wizard. I don't care if he has a diploma for it. I really, really don't. <laughs> it's almost like it falls into the prequel trap of like getting to in the details without even being a prequel. Yeah. Yeah, it's got this internal prequel that now Patrick <laughs> Rothfuss has decided it's going to take him years and years and years to finish the internal prequel to his book. Oh, So yes, so again, the how is not as interesting as the what's going to happen next. What's going to happen next is I'm really interested in what happens next in the the inn, in the framing device, the, the, the bar, and the world where the demons are coming back. I really want to see what happens there. I really want to see the what's going to happen next of when he actually goes up against these demons. That's what I care about. I don't care about how he gets through each thing. And I am going to finish the book because I apparently it's now an obligation that anyone who's reading fantasy, you have to read this stuff. So anyway, so. <laughs> My second thing, though, real yes. quick. Question for you. It's a general question. Mm-hmm. Do you like history? Did you like history class in school? Do you like reading history now? I absolutely history stuff? I absolutely do enjoy uh, enjoy history. So, but you know how it ends. <laughs> okay, well, so number one, there is the idea that there is a utilitarian value in understanding historical events in the real world. They can help us understand our present circumstances. And we can actually do something with them theoretically. We as a society, by knowing the mistakes of our past, can avoid them in the future, right? So there's that. Um, whereas there's nothing I can do with knowledge about how the Death Star plans got stolen. That's Start a really cool podcast. <laughs> well, Duh. fair. Um, well, I, I guess we could start a cool one. I guess that's what we'll have to do next. Yeah. Um, and I think that there is... There is something that makes the history of our own world more interesting than the history of a fictional world because it really happened. And, you know, in so much as anything that you can read about, you know, the pre-modern world, knowing that it's true, um, that it actually happened. But there's this, you know, fascinating things about, you know, you know, learning about Julius Caesar and the things that he did and how that shaped the modern world. That's fascinating because it's like, that happened. That sounds like something out of a movie, but it happened. And even if it didn't happen, the myths about it are important enough that they almost did happen. It's just like the idea that arguing whether or not Jesus Christ was a real historical figure is kind of a moot point because it doesn't really matter. The impact he has had is uh, equal, if not greater, than if he was an actual person who lived and died as opposed to, you know, more of a legendary figure. Anyway, so did I answer your question? 
Yes, although you talked more about why you think you... So the, the second one kind of, the second point gets to it a little bit, but I was more thinking, like, is it something you just enjoy? Like, is it something you get sort of similar enjoyment value of reading, like, a fictional work or watching a movie? Yes, um, but for different reasons. Um, it almost seems like, for me, the understanding of our real-world history is, it's enjoyable, but it, it, all, it also has a, it feels practical, it feels important, and it feels like there is still a knot to be untied and understanding the impact that it had. Whereas a fictional history, it's like, well, somebody's just making this up. The loose ends are going to tie up just the way they want them to. There's, I don't know. It just doesn't feel as important. It feels like the important stuff is the current story. The characters are doing the important stuff and the history of it is interesting, but doesn't really impact. And I think that actually gets to my second point. Um, at least from a fictional standpoint, is that like revelations about the past are more interesting when they're impacting the current lives and circumstances of the characters. Um, so the example is, you know, re at the end of the last season of Game of Thrones, it was finally confirmed after a thousand years of obvious speculation that Jon Snow is not Ned Stark's bastard son. He is the probably legitimate son of... Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark, right? No, is that the name? Lyanna. All right, yeah. Um, Wait, yeah. So, but the reason that that is important is because that revelation upsets the balance of power in the in the um, in the current storyline. That all of a sudden has great implications for the future of the story that we're actually reading. So you reveal that at a time that is dramatically interesting but also raises the stakes and twists the plot. If we'd known that going into the story, if we'd known that before we picked up uh, the first book, that information would be, you know, if you just read that, like, oh, okay, they had that kid, huh? Like, what is, what is the meaning of that? It's, it's, it's not in, as interesting as the, now the tension that we're experiencing reading the books and watching the show of, holy shit, what's going to happen when people find out about this? What's going to happen next now that this information is, you know, is out there and we're presuming that Bran is kind of keen on it. Um, so another example of that for people who don't necessarily <laughs> read books about dragons, uh, Orange is the New Black on Netflix. And there's actually a lot of shows that follow this pattern. Lost was probably one of the first ones that did it where usually your episode of the week is intertwined with, you know, present day events along with a flashback of one of the characters. And the flashback is not only giving us some background on the characters, but also explaining their actions and their motivation in the present day story. So you're learning why they act the way they do within the context of the story, and you're humanizing the characters as you go, and you're explaining their actions as you go, as opposed to we get to the end of the current day story, and then we say, huh, why were some of those people such weirdos? Hmm, let's go back and watch them again. If you, if you take those stories out, those flashbacks, those lost flashbacks, right? Let's say you pulled all of those out and re-edited them together. <laughs> into just the past stuff and then just ran that ahead of the current day stuff, both of those stories would be really, really dull. And it's because this is a storytelling device to help us understand the present less so than just filling out the details of the past and kind of doing the history lesson. Yeah, I would agree with that. I also would give another good example would be like Dollhouse where 
Did you ever watch it? No, that? no, no. Um, premise is that there's this dollhouse. It's like near future technology, which allows you to wipe a human brain, essentially use hard drives to imprint any memory and personality and skills you want on them. Uh, and when you start the show, it's like you, there's this already established, essentially brothel, because a lot of people want to, you know, have sexy times with them. But they're also like secret agents and whatever else they need to be. But it's filled with characters like dolls that you interact with that are blank slates. Their mind has been put. They're like serving a time five or ten years. I forget which one. I think it's five years. You serve the dollhouse and get a bunch of money and start your new life, I guess. But kind of throughout the series, as you get to know the dolls, you learn their backstory bit by bit and kind of accomplishes the same the same thing that, you know, Orange is New Black or something like that does. Yeah. And it would be worse. Both – it would be poorer for it if you had to watch those things in order. Or they did all the present-day stuff and then they did another series where they showed you these characters' lives beforehand, right? All of them would be boring. It's because what you're interested in, you're interested in the ongoing story and you're interested in how the past is influencing, um, which is why I think that there's actually a – to come back to Star Wars – there's this thing called the Machete Order. Have you heard of this? Yeah. So this is a recommended viewing order for the Star Wars movies that basically has you watch – I might be getting this the details of it wrong, but you'll get the idea. Uh, the, the first two movies, episodes four and five, and then you watch episodes two and three, and then you watch episode six, with the idea being that you're almost cutting the prequels in as a – you know, so you get the big revelation that Darth Vader is um, – is Luke's father. And then we're going to go and show you some of the prequel movies so that you can understand that journey that he went on before we come in and wrap the whole thing up. And that is uh, for a lot of people, the preferred viewing order also notice that it cuts out all of Phantom Menace because who gives a shit? Um, but because I think that's the best time to go back to your character's past. So I think, so I, I always attribute this to Dan Harmon, but I could be making this up. Well, not making it up. I've heard it somewhere, and I attribute it to Dan Harmon, who uh, created Rick and Morty and Community and, and a bunch of other things. This is how wrong quotes get started. Yeah, I just, I'm going to see I, someone share this on Facebook in like two years. I like, God damn it, just Greg. hedged the shit out of it, all right? <laughs> but I think it's Dan Harmon, but it might not be. Um, is that your story should take place at the most interesting time in your character's life. And so if you're following that, that uh, kind of... Uh, Guiding principle. Guiding principle, sure. Uh, if you're following that that doctrine, then anything else is going to be, well, this is the not the most interesting time in their life. You know, it's like rom-coms. The most interesting time of the relationship is generally, you know, the meeting and falling in love and working out the beginning of the day. That's the interesting, that's the part we want to watch. We don't want to watch that weird time between when they move in together and when they get married and they're figuring out bank accounts and uh, laundry schedules, right? We don't want to watch that. But then you see other, you know, dramas that take place maybe as a marriage encounter encounters a crisis because that's an interesting time to tune into these characters' lives. We don't want to go back and see what happened beforehand unless it has an impact on the story we're seeing right now, I agree with you, um, and I think that in, and it's I think that's not just your characters' lives. I think that it, when we get into kind of world building fiction that we usually talk about, it should also be the most interesting time in your fictional world, right? Like the and to come back to Game of Thrones, like this is the, one of the most interesting times for Westeros because not only do you have the kind of ongoing you know, territorial power fighting that's kind of always going on in the Seven Kingdoms. 
but you also have the impending existential threat of the White Walkers coming down from the north. And you also have other factors that are starting to influence um, why this might not just be another war for power in this war-torn continent is that it seems like the King's Landing is really is running out of money. So that whoever takes the Iron Throne is, you know, taking a ruined city. And this is this is not just another one of these power squabbles. So it's a very, very interesting time to be tuning into Westeros. So I worry that anything else that takes place in Westeros is going to be taking place at a less interesting time in its history. Because no matter what, it's going to be, oh, it's another war for power, but now there's more dragons involved. Cool. But it's not complicated by the economic factors and complicated by the existential threat coming down from the north and complicated by the fact that magic seems to be coming back all around in in a world that for a long time there had been no magic, there had been no dragons uh, in any kind of real way. Like this is there's a lot going on above and beyond just this political war that they're involved in. Yeah, I mean, I, I struggle with the idea of most interesting. I feel like it plays a little bit of a zero-sum game and a place doesn't have to be zero-sum. I mean, uh, most interesting in what way? Most interesting to whom? I think those are good questions and sometimes I think drive some of these create like prequels. Uh, some are certainly just dumb, you know? But like I think other people, especially in the world-building area, because I think it's like, well... You know, maybe I'm more interested in like a hot, like a, you know, the invasion of uh, the first men fighting the children because I want to see, because to me, that's a more important part of this world's history and more interesting to me than this part. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not saying that's how I feel, but someone could, maybe Martin feels that way. But like, yeah, like he, obviously they chose where they are doing the story for a reason. So they think it's, there's their initial kernel of an idea that turns into a world. Yeah. Potentially. Although I think some people are starting to build the other direction a little bit, which is a different approach uh, and could maybe have some interesting ramifications for this discussion. But So maybe from a world, it's not necessarily the most interesting. It's maybe the mo- the, the highest stakes or the most dramatic time. Um, and yep. that's the problem that a lot of you know modern superhero movies encounter is that they set it at the highest stakes thing. And then, well, how do we raise the stakes on that? Well, uh, well we opened a big sky- hole in the sky above New York. What if we opened two holes in the sky above L.A.? <laughs> hmm. Or one on the whole world. Like, you know what I mean? You know, like, that's the kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. And that's why that's a problem that plays sequels. Yes. Which we'll talk about a little later. So uh, – I do think that there are some kinds of prequels that can kind of work. And we talked a little bit about the soft reboot and that not really a prequel, but you know, um, it's an idea of when kind of going back in time can be interesting. If it allows you to kind of reshuffle the deck and kind of have this loose commitment to like, well, uh, maybe that other stuff didn't really happen. We're going to go in a new direction with it. Yeah. So be like X-Men first class or like the new Star Trek movies, yes, kind of exactly. a good example of that. Um, I also want to say one thing about before we jump into other ones that are good that one thing I don't like about prequels, um, or it can be okay, but that can be a, a big issue for me, uh, who's a little more open to prequels, prequel curious, if you will, <laughs> um, uh, is that they, they allow for weird retcons and like character, like new characterization or what I call character realignments where like, you think you know this character and they kind of play out a certain way, but then when you go back it allows for some – sometimes it allows for good explanations of why a character is the way they are and might be very interesting to how they got to that point. 
or it allows you to like tweak them in weird ways to sort of maybe retcon something out of existence or retcon why they did something. And it's like, mm, some of those are not the best. And I don't always love that. Well, that's the thing is, is that if you're going to go back and all of a sudden ascribe a bunch of character traits that I never saw in the character in the original series, that's to me, that's bad and lazy. Um, or I should say sloppy. I don't like lazy. That's sloppy. That's the kind of retconning where it's like, oh no, you, you this was not your plan going in, but now you just want to change it so that now it works better for the future. I that that feels cheaty to me. Um, I do like it when if it's done well, and this was maybe the creator's vision all along that now you can see that uh, that character in a new light and it works it was always intended to be that way this guy was always intended to really be a you know bad guy behind the scenes and now i watch the original again and it's like oh no he was scheming this whole time he was the bad guy um yeah like i say it can be good it can be bad uh, I think I see more of the bad than the good. Oftentimes, I think about what I'm reading right now. You know, when I'm reading this, those Orson Scott Card Enderverse, and that you know, I explained this before about how the you know, there's the kind of uh, two parallel stories, and the one books are kind of from the same same story from two mm-hmm. different pr- perspectives, and they were written about t- ten years apart, twelve years apart from one another, longer than that maybe. So it's like you start to see some things where it's like, well, I didn't quite mean it that way. <laughs> or like he did this thing, didn't realize it. This is like, uh, okay, buddy. Uh, but like, I think what about like a, a better call Saul? So that's interesting. You, you pointed that out and I should caveat this. I've not watched all of better call Saul and that's not me. That's not better call Saul's fault. That's my fault. It's really good. I think so far what I've seen, it's really walking the line and doing it right because the Saul that we see in breaking bad, that is, he is at the end of his story. They're really setting this up that that is now you're seeing a character who is at the end of a journey and he's, you know, and now we're experiencing a little bit of him. Uh, and seeing the start of his journey is is actually interesting. And it does a good, it, it somehow it succeeds where the Star Wars prequels failed, where we know this guy ends up as a sleazeball. And, and maybe that's because the character is much more compelling and the world is much more, com- well, I won't, now. Yeah. Um, they did a better job of setting up their Albuquerque circa 1995. <laughs> it feels a lot more believable than George Lucas's Star Wars universe 30 years earlier that just looks like a completely different place for no apparent reason. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's a little bit, they took a little bit more care in setting it all up. And it's more, you get the impression that there isn't a point where he becomes Saul, this sleazy lawyer guy. Like there's the, there's some... There's some turning to the dark side moment. It's more, this is a gradual slide from a, you know, morally compromised, but basically good person at the start of Better Call Saul and how he slides into this just incredibly corrupt sleazebag. And it's a slide. It's not a turn to the dark side moment. And maybe that's what makes it more interesting is that the Star Wars prequels didn't really do. It was kind of like, oh, he's good Anakin until one thing, until he snaps. And they were just kind of waiting for him to snap as opposed to watching him gradually compromise and gradually fall in more and more with the Empire and gradually um, become Darth Vader. It's kind of like, oh no, he he was, you know, he was, he was just kind of a jerk until he thought Padme was going to die and then he snapped. Yeah, I mean, I think what you said about the, like, kind of like the world building of, 
Albuquerque in the 1990s and 2000s. Like, it's a funny thing to think about, but it is true. And I think that it, one reason it works so well is because it's, I mean, Saul's the main character in Breaking Bad, but he's not the main character. Mm-hmm. So I think that, not that Darth Vader is the main character. I mean, I guess they, he is the, they tried he is to. The that main was character. that was George Lucas's plan. Was he really yeah, wanted to make this supposedly. Darth Vader story, which was a big mistake, I think. Yeah. So I think that the the choice to focus on a side character and include some little things and nods and Easter eggs and build it all together, which is great. They've done a fantastic job of that. I think it make for a compelling story because it's a different kind of story, and maybe or maybe it's the same themes. You can probably see some of the same themes. Good guy goes down a bad path, doesn't have a moment of instant, you know, falling into lava, getting our limbs <laughs> chopped off, but, you know, like slides into something evil. But uh, I think it's a good example of how of a prequel style that I like that's not, you know, you have some of the things on the list you have like Duncan Egg and it's like, well, that's a prequel, but it's then the other category of prequel I sort of said where it's like, well, it's related to this story kind of, right. but not really. Like it's kind of its own thing. And both those are cool, but I think that Better Call Saul is an example of a good sort of prequel in like the most classic way we've a talked direct about here. Prequel, yeah, where it's it's theoretically the last episode of Better Call Saul could close with the opening shot of episode one of Breaking Bad. So I think that yeah, and I think Duncan Egg, and I think that even The Hobbit is kind of like this. Where it's a prequel, but it's not. I mean, I don't think it was actually never intended to be a full-on prequel to Lord of the Rings. It was just kind of Tolkien wanted to write this kind of light fantasy novel. And if you go back and you learn about the different editions of The Hobbit, you saw as each subsequent edition, he brought it closer to the larger Lord of the Rings universe. Um, But it really just is like, how did the ring come into Bilbo's possession? Ah, Who cares? He found it. Whatever. Um, And Duncan Egg, it's it's not a direct prequel. It's, It's it's Here's some stuff that happened to spin off long enough ago that it's not going to have a direct impact. And also the tone is very different. The message it's trying to send is very different. Um, almost more of a spinoff. It's kind of, yeah, indirect prequel. Um, so I have my little list here of prequels that worked. Uh, technically, Temple of Doom is a prequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Although, who gives a shit? Because it's just another Indiana Jones movie. Which, yeah, that was my point about like, you know, kind of like more episodic style, just like adventure stuff where it's like, well, it doesn't really matter the order they go. And it's just like maybe just for maybe because for timing purposes in the world, it makes more sense for him to have been in that area pre-World War, you know, pre-World War II or whatever. So we'll put it right. there. You know, is Raiders of the Lost Ark a more interesting time in his life? Well, yeah, probably. <laughs> it's just a better But movie. like, you know. <laughs> um, well, and that's again, it's it's that, you know, it's it's. It, it's a one-off adventure story. It's not supposed to be really um, building out the world of Indiana Jones. Um, yeah. The Hobbit we talked about. Godfather Part Two is probably the only one that people would say is a, an actual direct prequel that is a classic, <laughs> a piece of classic cinema. Um, the, I didn't know that. I've never seen any of the Godfather movies. You should, at least for academic reasons. They are. I know. So it, Godfather movies, like Scarface and many other mob movies, are better movies than their diehard fan base would give them credit to be. Hmm. <laughs> they are actually uh, well-structured, well-built pieces of cinema that just happen to have developed a following of the worst kind of dude. <laughs> um the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly apparently is a 
takes place chronologically in that uh, Man With No Name series earlier. But again, it's like it doesn't really matter. It's another cowboy story with Clint Eastwood involved. Um, yeah, did you put Captain America on this list? I, I did. I was thinking about how like is it kind of a prequel. I don't know. So I would not. I guess it's. N- I would not put okay. this in the prequel category. Ditto for Wonder Woman. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's their first. It's their story. If you look at it from a larger cinematic universe building situation, it does go back in time and set some things up or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I would agree. I, that's why I put a question yeah. mark. I was like, eh, I don't really know. Um, and then we've and you put the matrix second renaissance yes. so we've that? talked about this before this is from the animatrix this is just a little oh, okay. it's like 15 minutes i think i've linked it on the uh show notes of another episode um and i think i put it on the facebook page because it's on youtube but it's just this little short animated story of how we got from essentially the world that you and i know today to the world of the matrix where the machines are in control and it talks about the machines and you know the uprising and their, you know, back and forth with humanity and all that. And it works because it, I mean, number one, I don't think it, I think it works because it's like 20 minutes long, not two hours. And it really just tries to answer one question. How do we get from today to this thing? And it has to take place on kind of a global scale. So it can remain kind of interesting and and kind of historically focused. Um, And it, it honestly paints us as the bad guys. It, it is a story of essentially we built these things. We taught them how to think. We essentially created life and then we enslaved it and were bigoted towards it. And eventually it had had enough with us. <laughs> and even mm-hmm. then, rather than just exterminate us, it, it built us a beautiful, um, perfect playground to live and work in. Uh, so it's really, it, it's good. Um, but again, I think it's more of a, it works because it's 20 minutes long and it has a very simple story to tell and it works at a different scale than the Matrix movies. It's almost presented like a historical documentary as opposed mm-hmm. to a, a, you know, in tight with our characters action movie. So I think it, gotcha. yeah. But yeah, the, well, cool. so, the list is short of prequels that, that have worked. Um, yeah. Although we had some st- more standout ones than I thought we would actually, but, and I'm going to clarify that I don't think. Uh, about the Hobbit, like the movies. Oh yes, do not no. Those are act well. awful. Don't watch those. And movies. They, just read the book. They because they try and do they go even further. Like they try and connect it even more and probably too much. Like all the extra stuff with like whatever. I mean, I haven't seen them, but I just, <laughs> the trailer isn't the clips I've seen. I saw I saw the first one, but I haven't seen the second and third. But just from the clips I've seen and trailers and stuff, like clearly Gandalf is like fighting Sauron in this movie at points, and it's like I don't remember that happening in the Hobbit, like. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's no, there's, like you said, it's just like, there's the ring and you see some same places, yeah. but like, that's pretty much it. Yeah. It's to the point where it actually confused me. Cause I was just like, man, there's a lot of shit going down, like in all this stuff. And then like, no one ever talks about it in Lord of the Rings. Well, I don't know. Maybe they do. I probably just didn't miss, I missed it. But. Well, there's a scene in fellowship where Gandalf runs off and does a bunch of research to realize that Sauron's coming back. Like, and then he comes back to, um, and then he comes back to the, to the Shire and it's that, is it secret? Is it safe scene where all of a sudden he's spooked and he's like, we got to do something about this, uh, which kind of creates a continuity error with the first movies. But anyway, don't watch the first movies. They're bad. Just read the book. Um, there is this other category I want to talk to before we jump to news. Um, and that's when I'm kind of calling non-canonical prequels, um, 
like yes. like Shadow of Mordor, the video game we've talked about, and then its sequel that'll be coming out soon, Shadow of War, I think it's called. That it's like this clearly takes place before Lord of the Rings, but I don't see how the ending of this aligns with the beginning of the other one. Like, but it's kind of fine because you you kind of realize like, oh, I don't really need to have this be super tight. It's just like, oh, whatever. I don't care if it doesn't line up 100%. Um, the Force Unleashed video games, I think originally those were canon, but it was... Yeah. But even then, you're playing them and it's kind of loose. Like, you're using the Force to pull Star Destroyers out of orbit, like, which is awesome. But it's also like, this is not the same Star Wars universe that the other movies take place in. I'm sorry. You could try to connect it all you want, but this is not the same thing. But it's... Uh, it was bad. But it's fine. I hated that choice to make it canon yeah. back in the day, but, you know, I'm actually... That's one of the things I'm actually, like, I'm willing to almost, like, jettison everything I love just to, like, have that no longer be, <laughs> like, part of my universe. <laughs> and even though it's not um, really kind of... I mean, it's kind of different, but Inglorious Bastards, the Tarantino movie, yeah. where they kill Hitler at the end... Like, it's kind of like, hey, you know, because essentially all the World War II movies that you watch, you're like, well, I know how this ends. But this one was like, fuck it. No, you don't. <laughs> like, And yeah. that kind of makes it fun. And there's a there's a freedom there that I think is is interesting. I want to see more of these kind of non-canonical prequels that don't – that just kind of shed the pretense of, oh, we have to make this line up note for note for note. It's just like, nah, we're just going to do the thing and who cares if it doesn't make a ton of sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it works in certain mediums and certain, uh, like, genre, like not genres, but like story areas and worlds better than others. Like, works in our like our own world. It works great because you're like, it's like basically a what if story, yeah. or like, you know, derails it a little bit. But yeah, no, I, I like to see more of those too because, like you said, not being so bound but still getting playing the world is fun. All right, should we take a break for news? We should. We have a venom. <sighs> You don't sound pleased. I mean, Tom Hardy's awesome. He's a cool guy. I like him as a choice for Eddie Brock. I'm glad they're going with like a big dude. If he's going to be a big dude, I mean, he doesn't necessarily a big dude, but he's been big dudes a lot recently. I think you know one of the many things wrong with Spider-Man Three uh, was like Venom was like the slinky, like sneaky version of Spider-Man. I'm like, uh-uh, that's not Venom. Venom's like the boxer version of Spider-Man. Like, come over here, let me beat you up. <laughs> As opposed to swinging around, I mean, he swings around, but I don't know. He's not a stealth character. He's he's the he's the right. beat. There's this idea that he's the kind of dark mirror of Spider-Man. Yeah, and I like it better. You know, Spider-Man is this kind of slinky, nimble mm -hmm. thing, and Venom is a wrecking ball. Like I like mm -hmm. that dichotomy. And Tom Hardy is a wrecking ball. Yes. So I mean, that's cool, and uh, I'm glad they're giving him some star power. But like. This whole Sony's Marvel Universe thing, <laughs> like, I am just so not on board with it at <laughs> such all. such a dumb and, name. Like, oh, did you also hear that the, uh, this is unrelated, well, it's kind of related, that the um, Universal is now the Dark Monster Universe, or the Dark, dark Universe? Dark Universe, it's so stupid. Yeah, uh, so that's cool. But um, I, just, I just don't get this decision at all. I just don't understand how you can have a Venom movie without a Spider-Man. I don't understand... How, why you want to do that in the first place i just don't i just don't they seem to like this this is working like spider-man you know was in civil war and he's gonna be in infinity war he's gonna his own movie marvel's doing all the work you guys get a bunch of money like just keep doing that <laughs> but i mean i guess they haven't specifically said it's not part of it yeah i've seen that anywhere officially kind of weird and i'm i've heard conflicting things on what sony's ability to use um spider-man is anymore and i think it's that 
because Homecoming is Sony, right? That is a Sony Pictures. It is a Sony Pictures movie. Okay. And that is the same Spider-Man that is in Civil War. Right. So if I'm remembering this correctly, the way it works is that they share the character and Marvel makes all the money on Spider-Man being in their movies. Sony makes all the money on um, using the Marvel characters in their movies. So Marvel doesn't make a dime on Tony Stark being in Spider-Man Homecoming. And I think that's the trade-off, which fine, I guess. I don't know how, I don't really give a shit about how any of this works. I just, just make some good movies and figure it out. You guys, there's plenty of money to go around, but it just seems strange that, yeah, they're, cause they're playing really sly about how these things connect. And there are reports that they don't. And like you say, like, how do you do Venom without Spider-Man? He's kind of a shallow character to begin with, but taking Spider-Man out of the equation makes it even less interesting. I mean, his main initial motivation is hating Spider-Man, like, <laughs> which is, you know, well, and maybe that's something we can do a little bit better job. On, probably. That's a, probably. It's like a, you know, what do they say that good, good villains are always the heroes of their own story. And, you know, his motivation is he hates the hero of the story. <laughs> not a good, but like, not a good job, guys. The, the details like of how that happens, which I'm a little bit like you know fuzzy on but it was you know he there were like competing reporters and peter parker kind of dicked him over and he knows that him and spider-man have a working relationship and then hates the both of them and it turns out hey guess what they're the same person and you know that it kind of made sense at the time and that's the other thing i'm a little confused about it's like i don't really i mean i'm i'm all on board with them with the choice if this would be connected let's say because there's some reports saying that there's been a lot of there's been some shots of tom holland Infinity War in like a full CGI outfit that's not usually he has on like some version of the Spider-Man suit. Huh. But there's been shots of him in a full like just like dots and stuff. So and you some think people we were saying like the black suit. Maybe finds a black suit, which uh-huh. could make a lot of spit could make a lot of sense because he got it in Secret Wars in the comics, you know, that's kind of how it all started. And there's um, there's gotta be some point where he rejects the tech suit that Tony Stark gives him. Right. Right. So that happened, hmm. yeah. So uh there's that, which I you know once again, be a pretty good thing to slide in there and set up your next couple Spider-Man movies just fine. But I don't really see, I don't know. I'm just wondering the connection. Like seeing Tom Holland up at Tom Hardy, I just, that seems like a, they seem much more like peers to me. Like yeah. shame age and like maturity because he's a little older when Venom showed up. It wasn't like in high school anymore. Like it just seems like a, like, like, whoa, like that's a very intimidating guy to fight. Like when you're 12. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I'll say it. There's always a weird aggressive sexual energy to Tom Hardy, right? And maybe, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, sorry, maybe I'm the only one who feels this way, but, uh, having him go up against like, you know, like Tom Holland, who's clearly like younger and weaker, that's a little bit, there's something weird there that I, you're right. I mean, no matter how you pair those two up, it's a strange, it almost feels unfair and a little bit. Well, that went a weird direction. Gross. Anyway, they also announced that. <laughs> yes. All right. This Black Cat and Silver Sable movie are, it is, uh, going to be called Black and Silver, probably. And it's going to be directed by Gina Prince Bithwood. Bithwood? Bithwood, I assume? Yeah, and uh, I think that's this is now officially the first superhero movie with a, you know, with a full female director, right? Is that the... Uh, African-American director. Ah, correct. Yeah, af- it'll be the first female African-American. Because, no, because Wonder Woman's directed by a woman. Oh, right, right, right. Um, But, uh, but yeah, so those are two linked things i didn't really get what's your opinion on a on a tarm hardy venom this whole thing just dumb i i mean okay so i i like tom hardy i worry that he has lately been falling into kind of a 
I'm Tom Hardy, this is what I do kind of thing. And, but then again, I love everything he's done. <laughs> you know, Bane was the best part of the last Batman movie and he's the best part of most movies that he's in. So I'm, I'm fine with it. I mean, I, I just kind of hope, I mean, he's going to have to do something with his voice because I mean, presuming they don't want a British Eddie Brock. Um, I just hope that he doesn't go full on mush mouth like he has in every single movie he's done lately. <laughs> I mean, the Revenant, he's got the mush mouth in, you know, Dark Knight Rises, he had the mush mouth so bad they had to read up his lines. Um, in uh, in Mad Max, he had the mush mouth. So I just hope that he doesn't have the full-on mush mouth in this. I mean, he always makes great voice choices as an actor, but um, maybe, maybe err on the side of clarity this time, especially since most of your lines are probably going to be delivered from behind a CG uh, tongue. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, so I, 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 I need more clarity from the enunciation because I won't be able to read your lips, Tom. So, yeah, I mean, like, uh, and this whole black hat source thing, we talked about it before and I just, um, did we talk about, oh, I don't even know, was it on our last episode? I don't know. But anyway, so <laughs> lost that episode, lost episode is going to haunt us episode. forever, man. Uh, I just, it's dumb. The whole thing is dumb. They're two not interesting characters that are only, in, well, Silver Sable's fine, but like black hat was like, she's only interesting in context of spider-man once again what if what if catwoman was in spider-man comics well we can't call her catwoman black cat all right fine good print it yeah i mean it's it's cool that they're like getting a female to direct it and that's a good choice because these two characters particularly black cat that kind of have like the super absurd comic super sexy skin tight you know femme fatale thing going on uh which hopefully they could avoid um if that's what they choose to do or want to do um, I would hope they would choose to avoid it, but, uh, yeah, I just, I just, I don't need to say any more about it. I don't like it. All right. <laughs> um, they cast, they, they made some casting announcements for, uh, new mutants, which, uh, so we've got Maisie Williams, who's Arya Stark will be playing Wolfsbane and Anya Taylor joy will be magic. Who is Colossus's sister. Whose mutant power is basically magic. Uh, the eighties were a dark time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like magic though. Uh, and Wolfsbane is, she's a werewolf who's also like Christian. So again, oh, 80s that, were a dark oh, time. I forget that. Yeah. yeah. Um, Anya Taylor-Joy, she was in the movie, The Witch, which I'm sure you haven't seen because it's a horror movie. It's really good. She's great in it. I almost think maybe she has more acting chops than this will need. But so you've called out that apparently it, they're making it a horror movie. Josh Boone, who's the director, who's has made, only made Fault in Our Stars and Stuck in Love, who are two movies I've never seen, uh, which are, but but not have horror you, movies. No, not, not horror movies. There are about like sick teens who like kiss each other. Right. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, but he said that there's going to be no supervillain, no costumes, and it's going to get weird and it's going to be a full on horror movie. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> like, so it sounds bad. <laughs> yeah. Like you don't actually know what you want to do with this movie. So, uh, speaking of things that sound good, uh, Jordan Peele, Half of Kean Peel, also who just made the movie Get Out, which haven't seen but hear great things, want to see. He's adapting Lovecraft Country uh, for HBO into a, a series. Lovecraft Country's book. I finished it. Uh, we talked about a little bit about it on the podcast. It takes place in 1950s America and kind of juxtaposes race relations at the time, uh, the African American experience at the time, with some Lovecraft style horror tropes. And for the most part, does a pretty good job. Um, 
and he's doing it uh, for Bad Robot, which is J.J. Abrams' production company. So th- that's a positive sign. Uh, Misha Green is writing. She's currently doing a show called Railroad, which is a historical drama about the Underground, underground Railroad. Haven't seen it, but that seems like just the kind of pedigree that you would want um, for for this type of project that is very much about you know the black experience in the 1950s. Um, and the book itself, I actually think it might work better as a TV series than it works as a book because the, the format of the book, it's almost like, it's really like three or four smaller stories that kind of share characters and kind of take place sequentially, but it's, yeah, almost more four short stories as opposed to one long narrative, which would work great as a series. So that could be very, very good. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So Netflix is going to do a Witcher series. Yeah. Uh, and that's all we know. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, you said here that it'd be like developed by the same company that did Cinemax in the game. Uh, yeah, un- yeah. Who knows if it'll be a, a real thing or a not so real thing or and and when it's coming out? Because if it's animated, I mean, uh, on this podcast we talked about when Netflix announced they were making a Castlevania series. They just put out a trailer for that. I made that thing in like two weeks. Yeah. Actually, also yeah. looks and it looks cool pretty now. cool. Yeah, it looks pretty cool now, and I think Warren Ellis is writing it, which I'm like, all right, fine. <laughs> yeah, the um, uh, the and the trailer, like the way they framed the trailer with like the Nintendo, that was just really cool. Yeah. I just enjoyed that. So back to The Witcher. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have I haven't read any of the books. I never. I've also never finished one of the games, but that's well, that's because uh, the games are just too deep, and I I, I can't finish them. Um, but the the premise is kind of interesting because it's a, a nice twist on kind of fantasy tropes because the witcher is a essentially a monster hunter and um but much of the the the, the games and i know the games hew pretty closely to the book so i think this is fair to say it's almost like a police procedural or like a detective story except instead of a serial killer it's a griffin and you know he, he you kind of have to f- figure out they're like something's do something's murdering our sheep and he you know and then it ends with a big fight with a griffin so it's pretty cool it takes kind of a mechanistic almost police procedural approach to these kind of fantasy tropes and it's a really well constructed and interesting world yeah i mean i i didn't realize that the witcher were books before they were games yes i i thought it was like you know like gears of war they made books that were adapt you know other stories or whatever but yeah it's and it's very popular in eastern europe because i guess it's polish in origin and they said like you almost have to be polish to kind of get some of what's going on in hmm. these books I'm yeah like, oh okay weird well a lot of it is really closely tied to um eastern european folklore that's hmm. where he's you know a lot of the monsters and the you know uh you know, the ghosts and spirits are very tied very you know pulling from that very very well, which is, you know, adds a lot of richness and character. That's one of the things I like about Hellboy as well as the way that it pulls from folklore and, and uh, you know, local stories. Yeah. I mean, I listen to a lot of, you know, folky black metal that's based on Eastern European folklore. So why not a game and a book and a TV show on top of it? <laughs> so you're just going to go listen to Elven King and... Uh, no, and no, no. I'm Witcher. talking like recorded in your mom's basement kind of thing. Like, no, not that bad. I mean, like, you're still going to listen to Elven King though, aren't you? They're okay. <laughs> Uh, all right. So uh, last bit of Game of Thrones conversation. <laughs> nah, what, who am I kidding? We're talking about Game of Thrones some more. Uh, so they announced just this past week that the final season of Game of Thrones, which is the season that comes out after this coming season, which will premiere in July. This is the next one. This is season eight, only six episodes long. 
the current season that we're watching that is coming out in June is seven episodes long, which means that between today and the end, there are literally only 13 episodes of Game of Thrones left, period. Yeah, and all the actors are saying that for season seven, the upcoming season, they say it moves incredibly quickly. Yes. So that'll be a change of place. <laughs> literally. <laughs> well, yeah, thank God. <clears throat> yeah, really. Uh, uh, sometimes things got a little dull. I mean, I, I like the slow stuff. I think you got to have the slow stuff to have the, f- the fast stuff, but that's just my opinion. So speaking of pacing, uh, you have some information on uh, this like Sanderson cinematic universe. Well, this and this is just for his Stormlight Archive 10 book series that he is. The third one's coming out this fall and I'll post the link in the show notes. But there was a someone just a, a Redditor somewhere did like a uh, here's what he could do to avoid a, a Martin to avoid the movies coming out before the books. And it basically spaces out when a book would come out, given his current scheduling, which is about, he's usually six to a schedule, unlike Ralphus and Martin. Uh, and then when you bring out the movie in comparison, and it stretches to 2040. <laughs> <laughs> and that assumes, because I, I looked, you sent me this little, this little chart with very little information, just kind of, you know, a column for book, a column for movie, and then a column for year. And yeah, 2040. And that's with a fairly conservative production schedule on both the movies and the books. He's given him about two years to write every book, two to three years to write every book, and two to three years to make every movie, which is about right. And we yeah, end up at I was 2040. Like, that's why I thought it was interesting because I was just like, this actually kind of makes sense. Like there's like a, a little bit of a gap to let – like, and then there's like maybe a three-year gap somewhere in the middle. But that would make sense because the books are two – like really two five-book stories of like two parts of a whole that's going to be – have a, a time break, like an actual in-universe time break, and a change of character perspectives. So, like, the, the first half and the second half are going to kind of look a little different. So, and that's where this, like, three or four-year hiatus in the movies would take place. Which but even is that, like, even if you even if you did it without that, even if you redid this and said, oh, no, we'll only give them, we're going to get rid of that. We go to, what, 2038? It doesn't really yeah. change the story all that much. It's crazy. It's just, like, it just blows my mind that, like, we're at this point where, yeah, this is some redditor. There's probably some guy in, a, in like in a studio, a workplace. Like maybe if we do it this way, like uh, thinking thirty years or twenty I years out in fifty-seven. <laughs> Jesus, God. you like me? Like think about retiring? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know, uh, if um, but yeah, no, like my like at that point, my kid will probably be out of college if college even still exists in. <laughs> any of this still exists. Uh, yeah, it just it just was really something funny that blew my mind, and I just. Wanted to run it past you. So, <laughs> shall we move on? Let's move on. So, I want to make the pitch for sequels going forward. I don't want to see any more sequels that pick up the next day, uh, the next year. I want to see sequels that take place far in the future. I think that this is, this is the best way to continue on in World of Ice and Fire. And... In our last episode, we talked about this a little bit, that I really hope at least one of those spinoffs is something that takes place after this War of Five Kings and whatever we're going to call this period of Westeros history. I want to go 100 years from now, and I want to see what the long-term impacts of everything that we talked about everything that's going on in the in the in that world right now what's that going to look like in 100 years because so much of what's interesting in 
the Song of Ice and Fire is you see the kind of, it's all about like, we don't always know what the impact of our decisions are going to be. And we think we're making the right call, but then we get our head cut off by Joffrey for it. Like it's, so setting something that's far enough out that we can see what the long-term impact of like, like Jon Snow's decision to like essentially disband the Night's, the Night's Watch or really rework that. Like, what is that going to mean a hundred years from now? You know, the way that the Lannisters essentially bankrupted King's Landing. What does that mean for the long-term history? Does that mean a hundred years from now we are, you know, starting to look at um, industrialization and now, you know, the North is now self-sufficient because they've figured out, you know, textile manufacturing and, um, you know, transportation systems are becoming more viable and communication systems are becoming, you know, more widespread. It's no longer, you know, tie a piece of paper to a bird's foot and hope it works out. Like that to me is so much more interesting than something that might pick up a year later, you know, now that assuming Daenerys is on the throne or whatever, who cares? But like, how is her rule going to be? And what's it going to be like now that Daenerys is in charge? Like, I don't really care. I want to see like the long term. That's so much more interesting. Um, and I think that's so much more interesting than like a kind of fill in the history prequel of like, hey, what were the specific conversations between Ned and Robert like before they decided to go to war in, in Robert's Rebellion? Like what matters is now they went to war and here's, and now we're still dealing with the fallout of that. What are we going to be dealing with the fallout of a hundred years from now in Westeros? I, I want to see that. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get to. Um, yeah. I don't know about that. I think the problem is like, I think, I think sometimes this gets back to what we we're talking about a little bit. I think why some people don't like doing sequels to their stories is a, it's partially like you said, like this is the most interesting time but the prequel area in their mind is a safe zone like well i'm just filling in some gaps here and i already know kind of what i had in my mind for what happened where a sequel can kind of tarnish not that a prequel can't tarnish like, <laughs> but a sequel i think from a from like more like a from a world building perspective can sort of you know it locks you in right like it if you if you strike now then that that is forever taken. Where a prequel is like, oh, I can kind of tell this guy's backstory. This guy's it's like a safer, right. you know, kind of kind of pick. And I feel like you don't want to diminish the story because what once again, this is like, like you said with superhero stuff. Like, how do you up the stakes? How do you make a similarly compelling story? I think what you laid out here for ideas are good, um, but would it be as good? Like, well, probably not because it's not the most interesting, maybe. But that's the thing is, I think then you get a chance to at least you know you have completely new characters completely new conflicts, completely new power relationships. And I agree that it's safer for a creator to work on a prequel because they can only do so much to really screw up the world they've built. But you know what? Great art is not made by playing it safe, right? This is true. You know, if you want to keep working in your world, do something more interesting, do a good service to your readers and tell, try to tell the best story you can. Don't set yourself up for you know, kind of the easy way out of, I'll just fill in some backstory. You know, if you don't think that you can, you know, if George R. R. Martin, uh, if he's still alive after, <laughs> after he finishes this series, you know, if, if he wants to continue, then, you know, and if he doesn't feel like he can tell a great story that takes place after and, you know, in a way that's 
makes us wonder what's going to happen, then maybe don't write anything about it. Maybe just keep pulling in your money. So I think there are some examples of, because there are a lot of, you know, some of these revivals that are happening are kind of showing how this can work. Twin Peaks, I think, you know, to talk about them again, is doing a great job because this story picks up 25 years after the end of season two. And in some ways that's lucky for the story because there are some hints that, um, in the original series that something was going to happen 25 years in the future. And here we are, but it's, but so it's allowed the characters, all of the characters to age in real time events to move on in real time. And now when we check back in, there's some interesting developments and we can, we're checking back in on these characters 25 years later and seeing how their lives are different, seeing how, um, things have changed. Um, you know, so this character, like one character who was kind of this like shitty, you know, kind of anti-authority, always getting in trouble character in the first series. Now we see him again and now he's working for the sheriff's department. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. I don't necessarily need to know the hows and whys, but like that's an interesting development for his character. And I want to, I'm interested to see where everybody is, checking back in on everybody and seeing how things went. And that's all kind of side to the, what is the main story, which is clearly about Agent Cooper, but, um, and I think that Force Awakens did this because it essentially takes place 30 years after Empire. Now, I think that it kind of dropped the ball a little bit because the the Empire sure did rebuild itself pretty quick. And that's an answer where I, I kind of feel like I want some answers on how that happened. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it decided, oh no, we're going to pick up later. Our actors have aged. And Sadly, I mean, I would like to see, you know, we see our characters in Force Awakens dealing with the fallout of some decisions. Clearly, Han and Leia are dealing with the fallout of the collapse of their partnership. Um, Luke is dealing with the collapse of the kind of the new Jedi school he set up. It's I kind of wish that we were seeing them grapple with decisions that they made in the movies that we actually saw. Like, that would be kind of cool. Um, yeah. Did, did you see that thing that, by the way, this is like off topic, but did you see that thing that Mark Camel was interviewed and they're talking to him about, you know, his takes, his thoughts on New Luke and what's going on in Last Jedi and everything. And apparently when he read for The Last Jedi, he sat down with Rian Johnson and said, I disagree with every single thing you made huh. Luke do in this movie. I, I had heard that tangentially. Uh, you know, he just said, I really, really hate all this, and but I'm going to do my best to bring it to life. But I really hate all of it. Which is a weird place to be for an actor, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I remember hearing tangentially some stories about, you know, the kind of, you know, how his, how Hamill's vision for Luke in uh, Return of the Jedi differed from George Lucas's vision for Luke in Return of the Jedi and how they kind of came to an agreement, you know, apparently, and maybe I'm misremembering this, but Mark Hamill wanted Luke to show up with, you know, he was all scarred and had, you know, you know, um, looks like he had just, you know, been through a lot and, you know, had had looked like maybe he'd maybe gone dark side a little bit by the time he shows up that he was really this kind of badass, whereas, you know, he ended up being a little bit more like the warrior monk that, you know, I think George Lucas envisioned. But I I, I, I appreciate that Mark yeah. Hamill has his own vision for the characters he plays because yeah. that's anyway, sorry the digress, mark of a good actor. Yes, I would agree with you. I think that I wanted to bring up Star Wars 8, 7, 8, 9 because it's good, you know, it's that kind of aging in real time thing which i kind of like a lot of series are doing that because it's the easiest way to handle well our actors are aged right um but it also is you know it makes it so it's if it's a non-fantasy show it sets it in our time 
uh, or you know, it just it allows you to have have a break in between, which I do think is is better. You know, I think, like you said, I think that Force Awakens dropped the ball a little bit because it tried to reset itself to the status quo as opposed to being further along in the story. Yeah. So I think there's there's another kind of, um, and I think one of the reasons these further flung sequels work is it's another storytelling idea that you know you want your characters to. You want your story to pick up at a time where things are changing for your characters, like where their status quo has changed. There's this saying that there's only two kinds of stories. One, someone comes to town. Two, someone leaves town. Where So it's a break in the status quo, right? A stranger shows up and upsets the, the, you know, the life of the town or your main character leaves his status quo of his existing town. So giving yourself a break allows your characters to return to some kind of status quo so that when whatever this, the inciting incident, like in, you know, um, uh, in Force Awakens, when, you know, Han Solo happens on the Millennium Falcon again and finds these kids – you know, he's being taken out of his status quo. He's kind of just come back to being a smuggler again. He's brought out of his status quo. Um, and that's interesting. That gives your characters some room to adjust to new circumstances as opposed to, you know, your kind of direct the next day sequels where it's like, they're, okay, well now, you know, it, if it's the Matrix, now Neo is the one and he's working for the, you know, the the resistance. And now we're starting this new thing as opposed to, a more interesting story where he's a guy going about his day, doesn't really like his job. Oh, it turns out you're a you're a computer wizard, magician, kung fu man. Like that's you know it's it's that it's that status quo, and giving yourself some time allows you to reset the status quo, and you have a little bit less of that. Like again, the Marvel problem of well, we already dropped in a, an alien invasion onto New York City. What happens now? Right now, we tune in three months later and. And it's 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 this heightened reality as opposed to giving yourself a lull, and now all of a sudden your characters are called back to action, and something is more, something interesting is happening. Yeah, I agree. There was something interesting done in the old Star Wars EU, which is still some of the, the better stuff. I think that was it was a, it was an interesting choice. It was a bold choice because more or less, real quickly, uh, you know, the, the books that came out after Return of the Jedi kind of came in roughly chronological order. Sometimes there was some jumping and filling in of gaps, but generally speaking, it moved up. Till about forty years after, not not too far off from where we're actually at for the pre for the sequels that we're watching now, forty years post Return of the Jedi, but not too long before the end of it, they started a comic called uh, Star Wars Legacy that took place a hundred and forty years after that, and it was like the descendants of some of these people and like. The, the status quo of the galaxy has changed very dramatically. And like you kind of said, like some decisions made a long time ago and some things that happened, like had some big effects that have changed the way the world works, the universe works. And uh, it was really good because all the characters you knew were dead. You didn't have to worry about characterizing Luke anymore or what Han's up to. Like you, you had a lot more freedom to tell new stories and, uh, you know, uh, the main character was a Skywalker descendant, but he was just like a smuggler who didn't want to be a Jedi. And, you know, just like it was very interesting stuff that happened. So I think there's a lot of room for that. And I agree. I agree with your pitch. I have my own pitch, though. My pitch are more anthology style series. I would love to have a Game of Thrones spinoff that's an anthology series where you just get bits, bits and pieces. You get one episode that shows like maybe shows like the Battle of the Trident, Robert's Rebellion, because it it'd be a cool thing to see on TV. And then the next thing, you know, next time you're in a 
post Duncan egg tail, you know, like just like kind of hop around. And, you know, I think we're getting to the point where viewers would be willing to be put on there. Like when it takes place in a year or whatever, I think people are getting smart enough and interested enough in big worlds that they want, they would be willing to sit down and watch that and maybe have it culminate in theme or in, you know, maybe little bits and pieces here and there. I think you could do cool stuff with that, but that's my idea for spin-off series to something a little bit different than just like a direct sequel or direct prequel. I'm also noticing here in the in the in the notes you just wrote in all caps oh. Mistborn and then Greg. Well what you were describing what you wanted for a song of ice and fire is just essentially <laughs> Mistborn at this point. I'm just like, God damn it, Greg. Like just look, read man, these I can books because like all right, look, uh, all I'm reading right now is stupid wizards and swords fantasy for you, man. For you. I am suffering through this stupid <laughs> King Killer 2 for you. I don't want to hear about honestly, how I'm not reading Mistborn. I will get there. Honestly, I would just pause Wise Man's Fear and go to Mistborn because you're going to have a much better time. And they're a lot shorter. Yeah, if I, if I put down Wise Man's Fear right now, I'm telling you I'm never picking it back up. So <sighs> no, I'm not sure <laughs> it's a bad idea, honestly. Um, but like, but to, to go on more about that, like the first Mistborn trilogy is, I explained this a little bit before, like is a late medieval kind of style setting. And then there's a big climax that happens. It's a really awesome story. And then the next trilogy, or actually it's four books, is takes place, I think it's, three 250 years but it's like teens 20s industrialization skyscrapers are being built steel is a thing like that i mean steel's always been a thing but like you know like steel construction is a thing um cars are starting to happen trains are a big deal like you're getting a sort of different style story and different economic stresses and then the next trilogy is going to be a modern 80s 90s era early computer era he said and then the last trilogy is going to be a sci-fi faster than light travel one so like you're seeing the same world stretched out over a long area, which I think is really cool. And that's why you should I, read I, them. <laughs> I really trust Sanderson's world building. And yes, I will read them. I don't need your – I look, I have a long list, dude. It's on the list. Uh, I also wanted to comment on another similar thing that was kind of done. You know, I'm, I've been talking for a while because there's a lot of books, but I'm reading the Enders, Enderverse series. And I'm reading Speaker for the Dead now, which is the actual sequel to Ender's Game. Uh, and it's a direct sequel – Ender's only 35, but due to space-time dilation travel bullshit, it's actually been 3,000 years since the end of the last book. So human society has changed a lot, and he as a person is essentially a mythical figure in this world because he both did what – he caused what's called the Xenocide, which he unknowingly wiped out the only other intelligent race of creatures that we've met in the universe at this point, and he's condemned for that despite him doing it, because I think they were saving the human race. Uh, he also basically wrote this book uh, called Speaker of the Dead, um, or it's called The Hive Queen and the Hegemon, but he starts a pseudo-religion, which he is basically like the first one of. So he's walking around on planets, and they're like talking about these things, these mythic things that happened thousands of years ago, and he's just like, all right, well, I'm here. <laughs> <Hanging out." laughs> it's very interesting, but I don't see again to show the decisions that were made then and how time can distort history. I think it's a really fun thing to see in sequels, so... Yes. That's my answer is yes. All right. Shall we move on to recommendations? We should. So my recommendation is two parts. One is American Gods. I feel like I've said this before, but right now I think five of 10 episodes are out. So if you uh, signed up for stars today, you'd probably only have to pay for one month. So only about eight bucks, you get to watch all the episodes. Um, and you really should, it's excellent. But, um, 
The second part of my recommendation is another one of these books that I think falls into that realm of like, is it a sequel? Is it a side story? Does it matter? Uh, And that book is Anansi Boys, also by Neil Gaiman, that essentially takes place in the American Gods universe, but because it uses this one of the characters, Mr. Nancy, who is the um, kind of, who's Anansi, the the, uh, West African spider trickster, spider god. And it's about his two sons. And they're, you know, they're essentially demigods. And it really focuses on one of the sons who... um, doesn't really know that he's a demigod and it's a it's a it's a closer story it's a more personal story in much the way that um the hobbit is it's this kind of it takes place in the universe but it's telling a story with a different scope different focus it's not big end of the world issues it's really more about a family dynamic and um coming to terms with your role in the family and um what you've inherited from your parents versus who you are as an individual and it is excellent. So it's kind of a prequel. It's kind of a sequel. It's kind of a side story, but it's just a good book. And I think it does one of the things that, you know, good um, sequels and prequels do is that it changes scale, changes scope, and finds a way to tell a different kind of story in the same kind of world. Uh, so that's my recommendation, Anansi Boys by Neil Gaiman. My two recommendations will be, my first is uh, unrelated to our current topic, but much like your American Gods is. Uh, I just watched, um, I'll talk about it more next week, but the first season of The Expanse I mm-hmm. finished, and I'm just going to recommend it. I won't say much more than that at this point, but uh, watch it. To be more on topic, I think my recommendation is going to be Speaker for the Dead. I'm almost done, so I mean, maybe if the ending really sucks, I'll probably retract my recommendation. <laughs> but so far, it is a very different style book than anything else I've read by uh, Orson Scott Card thus far. Um, it's very, there's no action. It's not an action book in any way whatsoever. Um, it's more, it's got a lot of anthropology and just musings about, you know, some of like the more like big topics we talk about in science fiction, but not the same kind of way. Like, it's like, oh, there's a new alien species. It's okay. But how do we, how should we really interact with them? And, uh, to sort of talk about our, your pitch, it really does a good job of showing a universe that's 3000 years older and, a character that's seeing kind of in the way that almost like the viewer would of like can see the whole scope of history very quickly, having been a part of it at different points. So I'm gonna recommend that. Cool. Except don't, don't buy it though. Yeah. Don't, this is, this goes back to our sending money to problematic creators argument. Yeah. 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 (laughs) All right, guy. Well, um, I guess I'll see you next week then. See you next week.